Hey everyone, I'm Michael Whistler, and I sincerely believe that science fiction can help us save the world. On this episode, I'm going to be joined by SB Divya, and we're going to talk about how the voices in my head are actually supposed to be there. Well, sort of, kind of. We're going to talk about her novel, Machinehood. This is Exploring Tomorrow. Divya, thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, on the podcast and coming in to talk about uh, your, I, I believe this is your first novel, uh, right? You've published other things, short stories and whatnot, but this is your first novel. Yeah, that's correct. Um, very happy to be here and always happy to chat about Machinehood. This is indeed my first full-length novel. I've had a standalone novella come out with Tor.com Publishing about five years ago almost now as well as, yes, a plethora of short stories, including a collection of short stories that will hopefully be available for sale in the U.S. Um, later this year. Excellent. Well, that's great. Um, I, I know that you are really uh, connected to the world of science fiction. Uh, not only do you write and, and have you had, uh, I believe you've had short stories published in, in various magazines like Analog and, and others. Um, That's correct. And but you also are one of the editors for one of my favorite podcasts, Escape Pod. Yes, I have been on staff with Escape Pod in various capacities, starting as a first reader from back in 2015. The podcast itself is very uh, venerable at this point. Is probably yes. the best word. It started in 2005 um, by the efforts of one woman, Sarah Ely. And has grown over the years to an entire team of people. It has been through multiple editors' hands who have since, you know, retired or stepped back. And it was my great privilege to to become one of the editors in 2017. That's awesome. Uh, that's got to yeah. be quite the uh, the undertaking. Um, reading through all the the submissions and uh, producing a podcast. Uh, but it's it certainly uh, so. Any any listeners who have not checked out podcast the, this particular podcast, Escape Pod, um, man, it is highly worthwhile. Um, I'm not trying to just suck up. I really do <laughs> listen to it uh, <laughs> regularly and uh, and quite uh, enjoy it significantly. I was really excited um, to to see that. Um, it was uh, Frank Wu's story was recently uh, featured oh, there yeah. as well. He he was just on the show just recently. Um, oh, fantastic! And we were talking about uh, in the absence of instructions to the contrary, uh, his short story. Yes, that's originally an analog. So Escape Pod right. does a mix of reprints and original fiction, and we love trying to highlight some some of our favorites that we stumble across from other publications. Yeah, that's that's definitely a, a favorite of mine. And uh, um, when I had found out that Frank was was uh, had published in Analog, I had to run out and grab it. <laughs> I, go, I go back for a ways, new, new, known Frank for a little while. Um, that's awesome. But yes, uh, I I'd love to hear just a little bit from you initially. You know, because clearly you're so connected to the world of science fiction, uh, but you also have a background in science, uh, which is amazing and really fascinating to me. Uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit about 
What uh, brought those worlds together for you and what got you into science fiction? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. Um, when I was about nine or 10, it's a little hazy at this point. Uh, my dad really wanted me to up my reading game, so to speak. He thought I was reading under my level. I was reading a lot of Nancy Drews and just random stuff from the school library. And he was speaking with a colleague at UCLA about this. And said colleagues suggested that I might like science fiction. So he came home and he was like, Divya, you should go read some science fiction. And neither of my parents are into it. It's not like he handed me a book, right? I didn't even know what to hand, right? (laughs) No, he didn't even know what to hand me. uh, But he had heard that I might like it. So he was like, yes, go do this thing. And so just just to make him stop harassing me, I went to my school librarian and I said, can you please give me a science fiction book? And I figured it was going to be, I don't know, like little green aliens or some nonsense. And I was convinced that I would not enjoy it, but I could this way prove to my dad how much I wasn't going to like science fiction. And she handed me not little green aliens, but uh, a very slim volume called The Green Book by Jill Patton Walsh. It's not hugely well known. I think maybe within, you know, children's sci-fi circles, maybe, but that book blew my mind. I I read it. There were no aliens. It was about a family that was fleeing the earth along with some other survivors after some great, you know, terrible disaster that was about to befall our planet. And it had this twist of an ending that just got to me and I was like this is amazing and so I went back to my librarian all on my own and said can you recommend me some other science fiction and she pointed me at you know the the various books with the rocket ship logo on the spine and said you know this is what you want to look for but I think the second or third book she handed me was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Mm -hmm. and I have to confess that I found it very dull and as 10-year-olds do, made up my mind that I was only going to read science fiction and not fantasy because <laughs> clearly fantasy was not for me after a sample size of one. And and that persisted um, for a good many years. So I, I found a lot of wonderful authors and, and children's science fiction books and then kind of gradually worked my way into the adult section because there was no YA or teen section uh, back in the 80s. And... Um, at that point, finally, someone had gifted me The Fellowship of the Ring, just the first book. And it took me a couple tries to get through those first hundred pages, which are very, very slow. But eventually I did. And then, you know, and then I was committed and I was in for the entire rest of the ride. And then I was like, oh, okay, all right, maybe some fantasy is pretty good. I guess I'll read it, you know, occasionally. So even to this day, um, my heart belongs to to the sciencey bits of science fiction, even if it's science fantasy, even if it's Star Wars or Nine Fox Gambit, where the science itself is very dubious. Um, I prefer that to outright magic, but I do uh, read fantasy and I do occasionally write short fiction that mostly tends towards the slipstream or magical realism aspect of fantasy. Um, someone recently asked me, uh, tongue-in-cheek on Reddit is another author friend of mine, actually. 
what it would take to get me to write an epic fantasy series. And I replied, lots and lots of money, because that'll get you to do anything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, but generally speaking, yeah, for, for my longer form, just uh, I love inhabiting the worlds of science Enos and same with escape pod you know we have our sibling podcasts um podcastle for fantasy pseudopod for horror and cast of wonders for young adult and escape pod is is holding the torch for science fiction unlike a lot of other short genre fiction magazines which tend to mix things up we're kind of trying to keep each podcast somewhat exclusive to its domain i mean the boundaries blur obviously, especially more and more these days. But, um, but we do our best to, to make sure there's some featured element of science or technology that's speculative somewhere in the story. Makes sense. Yeah. And did that, that choice of like really getting into science fiction, did that influence you towards science as well? It definitely did. I, it, gave me a heavy interest in science and technology in general, I would say, as a foundation. But honestly, in those, let's say, preteen years, I was more intrigued by space travel, you know, wanting to be an astronaut, that kind of thing. And then in eighth grade science, I did a project with my best friend on the life cycle of stars. Going from, you know, how a star forms all the way to how it dies, which for people who know, depends very much on the mass of the star. Right. And that just captivated my imagination and curiosity so much that at the age of 13, I decided that I wanted to go into astrophysics. And this dovetailed very nicely with my love for science fiction as well, right? Um and so I, I continue to be interested in that in, and physics in general. And when I started college at Caltech, I was a physics major along with half of the incoming class, fully intending to go into astrophysics. And then for a variety of reasons, diverted myself in my third year to a, a different major entirely, which was computational neuroscience. And I call that the, the other black hole of our knowledge yeah. Um, which is to understand the brain. And there is so much we don't know about it. And I found it just as fascinating as I did the the physics side, but with uh, more employability, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I, I can understand so, that. <laughs> right. So after that, I, I went into um, engineering as my, my primary career for about 15 years. And then I decided to come back to my love of science fiction and writing and try to do it professionally. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> Definitely. Me too. I've been very fortunate for sure these last few years. <laughs> That's awesome. And it, man, uh, have you ever reconnected just out of curiosity with that librarian <laughs> to like tell her, look what you started. <laughs> no, you know, I wish I, I wish there was a way I had looked up the school, but I suspect that who. 40, almost 40 years later, she's hopefully retired. Right. Um, and sadly, my eighth grade English teacher, which is where I wrote my first piece of science fiction, um, passed away about a decade ago. She was already a white haired, you know, uh, senior level teacher at that time. Mm -hmm. So be before 
I got into my writing career before I could tell her, you know, of that particular influence. Um, yeah, she passed. So I have not tried to track down the librarian, to be completely honest. I don't remember her name. And it's quite a while ago. I kind ago. of remember what she looks like, yeah. but I don't remember uh, I don't remember her name. So I'm sure I could go to the school and just be like, who was the librarian in, you know, 1984 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, and they might be able to tell me, but uh, but you're right. I should I should probably make an effort just just on the off chance that uh, I could connect with her. I'm sure That's just, that would be a joy. It's just a funny thought, you know, just fun to, to think of like oh you know because you in the moment i you know it's just it's just a thing you're you're both just living life and doing your thing you know neither of you has any idea that this is like a life-shaping moment you know that had she potentially handed you something else that you were like oh yeah. <laughs> you know that would have been the end of it <laughs> right potentially like narnia right Oof, if that came first <laughs> <laughs> right this isn't science there's nothing science uh, about it no <laughs> that's great and uh so now you've written uh machine hood uh it just came out uh this spring uh and uh i it, the premise intrigued me uh so i hopped on it right away and checked it out uh and so yeah i want to dive into chatting a little bit about that because um, it's a really fascinating kind of near future uh, story uh, has really plays with some some key ideas about human augmentation uh, of how our world kind of develops through these you know we daily need drugs to to fend off the uh, the new variations sort of it's almost like real uh, regular viruses become kind of like computer viruses. In a, in a sense, and yes. people are kind of programming those. So this is kind of the milieu that, that all of this is taking place in. Uh, but inside is this uh, story about uh, the machinehood, this, this organization that uh, exists uh, to, to propagate the, the idea of the rights of not only perceived as sentient machines, but, but really all machines. Uh, am I getting that uh, close? To, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty accurate. And um, so, yeah, tell me a little bit about like what inspired writing this particular story, and maybe a little bit about where the characters came in uh, to this story. So this story is in good part inspired by my own experience in the world of machine learning and the work I've done there, and the computational neuroscience degree, all of that. Um, there's always been this holy grail at the moment of artificial general intelligence. And then after that, to build artificial consciousness. First, we have to understand natural consciousness. That's still a pretty big mystery and our own modes of intelligence, which is something, you know, we're chipping away at a little bit uh, more easily than we are with these abstract ideas of sentience and consciousness. So that kind of created the, the foundation for the idea of machinehood in the sense of machine intelligence and personhood. And one of the things that's always intrigued me is how are we going to know? You know, the gold standard used to be the Turing test. Right. And 
it's fairly clear that we've passed the Turing test or are imminently going to pass the Turing test this decade, if you don't believe in the earlier tests, which begs the question, is something like a GPT-3 engine for natural language processing that can have a conversation with a human intelligent? Have we created true artificial intelligence, sentience, whatever? And I think most people would say, no, it's just a piece of software running on a piece of hardware, doing some very sophisticated uh, statistical analysis on word usage, and that's it, right? It's not a living thing. It's not any sort of person. There is no emergent entity here. So I feel like there's this moving goalpost in the industry. As, as we build ever increasingly complex artificially intelligent systems, we keep changing the definition of, you know, when we arrive at this goal of an actual AI or entity. And so the book explores that, um, but it does it through the lens of a fast-paced thriller plot, a very action-heavy main character, Walgo Ramirez, who's, you know, ex-special forces and is working as private security. Um, she's a very physical sort of person and, and also a secondary character, her sister-in-law, Nithya, who is more the intellectual side and also the domestic side of the story. And I brought in the action hero because it's a thriller, because the machinehood is this shadowy organization creating chaos, agitating for social change. And I am a fan of fast-paced stories. So uh, I am not always a big fan of action in the sense of um, violence, but I like things that move along at a, at a steady clip. So as a counterpoint to that, I wanted someone who could show what life is like in the year 2095, which is when the story takes place. Because there's a lot of small details in domestic life and ordinary everyday life. And I think science fiction often neglects this in favor of the exciting action protagonist, right? But I think it's fascinating to think about how people are going to live in the future because that's what we all experience and inhabit, or most of us at least, right. you know, on a daily basis. We're not out there uh, fighting to save the world. We're out there making sure our kids are fed and, you know, the dog has water and we get to work on time. So, um, so it was really kind of nice to have these two characters in juxtaposition. And of course they're related through marriage. So there's a lot of interaction between them. Walga starts to develop some interesting health complications, possibly due to these pills she's taking, which she needs for her job. And Nithya works in designing these things, so she's able to help a little bit research what might be going wrong, which allowed me to kind of dig a little deeper into the technical side of what I was inventing. Um, so I had a lot of fun kind of with that, that interplay between the two of them. But ultimately, you know, I felt like the book was me interrogating a very big existential question of these last five to 10 years that's happening, was happening mostly in the tech sector, but I think now it is now expanded everywhere and accelerated by the pandemic, which is how does the human labor force um, 
keep up with and or compete with the automation that's coming in the 21st century. And so this book explores multiple facets of that particular question. Yeah, and and does so, I, I think, in a really fascinating way. I love that you did balance uh, the story uh, with that aspect of here's the sort of the action-y side. So, you know, you, you got your thriller, uh, but also that domestic side uh, because it the, this reality does affect all of that. And, and I, th- I found it fascinating, like you really take the gig economy kind of <laughs> to its logical conclusion where it really is like nobody has a job they, everybody's just gigging all the time and and cameras are ubiquitous uh even even the the death of privacy to such a level that um you know that there's, there's just literally no no filter no wall in a lot of ways uh for these right. characters um, and but, but what I like about it, that your approach there was to show this world, but it didn't necessarily feel overly judgmental. It was just like, look, this is, this is this world. <laughs> and, uh, there are pluses and downsides. Uh, there are good things and bad things. Uh, but it's, it is something I think that we have to wrestle with. Like you're saying, our definition of what is a sentient artificial uh, being uh, and what, and, and what, do, what are we willing to sort of put ourselves through to remain competitive? Cause there's so much in the book about, Oh, we got to take the, the, the zips and the buffs and all these different drugs, because that's the only way you can even like stay relevant as an employable gigster in, in right. this world. Um, were there like where did that come from? Like in terms of your thinking, thinking that through. A lot of it came from me sitting down initially before writing the book to try to imagine where we might end up in 2095, and I was doing this exercise in the spring of 2017, so four years ago, and looking at you know, global foresight analysis, looking at where science and technology were headed, where geopolitics was heading, and obviously where the economy and the labor force were were going. So looking at social aspects and socioeconomic aspects. And, And I literally kind of sat down and tried to take, you know, pieces of where we had been trending and extrapolating them forward. And four years ago, people were really excited about the gig economy, especially in the tech world, right? They thought somehow this was, this was the answer to everything. This was the best possible future. So I was like, okay, what does that future look like? You know, in reality, if, if that's what happens for the next seven decades. And similarly, I looked at biotech, you know, what happens with CRISPR, which was, right on the cutting edge again, four or five years ago, and everyone's very excited about it. What happens if CRISPR becomes our next uh, semiconductor technology and it becomes ubiquitous and everybody can do gene editing at home pretty much, right? What happens if social media and the fact that people are putting their lives on display for everyone else in an increasing fashion with 
less and less regard for their privacy. What if we carry that forward a few decades? You know, what might that look like once people stop caring uh, about privacy and they think that's just a outdated concept? So then I, after kind of brainstorming each of these things, I sat down and kind of wrote like a one or two sentence summary of each decade between now and 2095 of how we get there from here. Cause I was like, I came up with this concept of what the future looks like. And then I was like, okay, what are the bridging actions that get us there? Because this is a very realistic story. That was my intention. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, a hunger games type dystopia or a post-apocalyptic situation where some massive upheaval has happened that changed everything in a very quick way. This is just a natural progression, just like the last hundred years were or the last 75 years were of, you know, life, technology, everything else. And so I really wanted to make sure that the people, my characters who inhabit 2095 have a sense of history because we all do. So I wanted them to be able to refer to the 40s and 50s, which for them is the 2040s and 50s as opposed to the 1940s and 50s, right? In which case I, as the author, God, had to know what happens (laughs) (laughs) in those particular decades. And so um, that also kind of helped shape the future. So there's a little bit of a, a feedback there, I guess, from my initial ideas to, well, how do I realistically think we can get there? And how fast are we going to get there? So initially, I actually had the story set in um, 2115. And then I rolled it back 20 years because as I was writing it, things were developing so quickly that honestly, I think I could have set the story in 2055 or 65 and it would still be entirely plausible from a technological standpoint But there were certain things I wanted in my character histories and in terms of the generational shifts over time. And I think social change takes longer than technological progress, typically. So I wanted to reflect that. So my compromise was was the year 2095. So the turn of this century. Makes sense. Yeah. That's really fascinating, too, mapping that out. Uh, Are you going to like print out a timeline and and keep that on the wall. And then as the decades go by, see like, yep, that came true. Uh, Oh, that (laughs) one came true sooner than expected. (laughs) Some of it is already coming true sooner than expected. Like the, uh, the ubiquitous drone camera swarms, right? There's the social change aspect of nobody cares about privacy. Everyone wants to be, is used to being on camera and wants to be on camera to earn tips. But there, from a technical standpoint, I was reading just a couple of weeks ago in some lab, they've developed insect size drones. And you know, putting a camera on that is not far behind. And we already have the swarm technology in terms of coordinating hundreds or even thousands of full size drones in the sky. So you just have to, you know, miniaturize the the chip technology a little bit more and uh, voila, we're going to have micro drone camera swarms uh, as a entirely doable thing, probably in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years, the right things are going. Yikes. Yeah, that'll be fascinating <laughs> to see how that plays out. As long as they don't become so small and um, destructive, like in, uh, was it uh, Michael Crichton's Prey? 
uh, you know, the little nano cloud of nano machines comes through and like kills people. Like, as long as it doesn't uh, do the that. gray goo. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm not a big believer in, in the gray goo effect. I find that uh, to be one of those science fictional conceits that can be fun to play with, but is not particularly credible to me because <laughs> you would need, you would need so much uh, capability for that nanotechnology to be able to break things down. Like it takes energy right. to destroy a thing. And so even if you have a swarm of these, it's going to take them a long time to disintegrate, let's say a wall or a human body. Right. So you have time then to react much like if you have a spider bite and develop God nectar, what is it? Necrotizing fascia, <laughs> right? The flesh eating bacteria, you have time to deal with it. Like it's not going to happen Hollywood style, yeah. you know, so fast that like, oh, you're dead within hours and there's nothing you could do. Like that's the part where it, it kind of loses me. Right, right. That's eh, a little further out. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> like you're saying, trying to take things to their logical conclusion, but it's not always as logical as, as we hope. Um, but I really, you know, as a fan of hard science fiction and a, and a, a fan of thinking things through, I love your approach there in thinking this through decade to decade and, uh, and actually, yeah, not introducing some sort of major cataclysmic change, but instead just saying, okay, so where does this, if we leap to here and we leap to here, then where, do, where do we eventually end up? Uh, which is why it feels so near in in some ways um in some very key ways uh and also feels um maybe more pressing or more frightening even uh because of that um it, how much of this was like you wanted to tell a cautionary tale and how much of this is you you just you trying to find the story in in this uh future just that you potentially see as inevitable i was not trying to tell a cautionary tale i generally prefer for this kind of story to stimulate people to think about these things and question their assumptions of where we're going what's good what's ideal what's not ideal and so the book was really me more exploring these ideas, uh, especially, again, for the people who were evangelizing in the tech industry, certain ways of life, certain applications of technology. You know, is this the future you'd want to inhabit if this is where we're going to end up because of the decisions that we're making today? And so it's really me interrogating some of these uh, themes and hopefully in the mind of the reader, I really just want them to walk away thinking about it from that standpoint, because, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's not all bad. There's definitely good aspects to this particular future. There's positive things. There's, you know, better environmental sustainability in terms of clothing, in terms of solar power, in terms of integrating with our microbiota and nature. So, I didn't want to present a 2095 that was just bleak and awful and everyone's, you know, looking at it in the like traditional cyberpunk sense of let's not go there. Right. I didn't want such an easy answer. I wanted 
there to be complexities because I think there always are in terms of our lives and the choices we make. And even for, you know, policymakers, right? We're, we're always having to compromise uh, our ideals. That's just practicality, I guess. And while it's 100% fun in fiction to throw out practicalities and just, you know, have fun taking things to the extreme, this particular book was not that type of exercise uh, for me. I've done that with some of my other fiction, but not in this one. <laughs> and was there a particular reason why you wanted to to keep it within that that realm of of thinking these things through? Some of that was just the the original kernel for this particular book was a. Uh, a short story never published that I had drafted a couple different times and wasn't working. Um, the, I didn't keep a lot from that short story, but it was kind of a, a near future high octane type of thing. And when it comes to artificial intelligence in particular, I think again, because of my background, I wanted to paint a very, very realistic look at AI because I think very few science fiction pieces do that. They often just kind of skip ahead to when things are sentient or skip ahead to the robot uprising or, you know, whatever, right? Skip ahead to, let's say, Star Wars and adorable little droids that somehow can all communicate perfectly to each other whatever the ideal is that allows us to humanize the intelligence and move forward from there. We never really get, again, the bridging steps of getting there, you know, and how do we know that we are there? And so to explore that, and I guess because I already know too much uh, in my own head about where we really are and what I suspect is plausible, I kind of had to keep this in the realm of, you know, hard science fiction, right? Of, of realism, of high, high plausibility. Yeah. I, and I am a big fan of exactly that kind of, uh, science fiction. So I, I think that's why I was drawn to it. So, so immediately and was like, Oh yeah, I'll definitely check this out. Um, so it's quite fascinating. And one of the things that I also appreciate about the way you approach the story, too, is uh, I'm, you know, I'm as a fan of science fiction for a long time and a multicultural person myself. I may not look it, but I was actually born in Brazil in South America and spent uh, most of my childhood there. Um, one of the things I have been fascinated with is the shift away from the white male dominance of science fiction and into a much more diverse reality for science fiction, which I think is um, both refreshing, but also necessary given that I think as our world continues to be a bigger and more intricately meshed global network of, of people, uh, inevitably, the future does not look exclusively white male, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> um, and, then, and then, so I love that, that you know being able to encounter that kind of fiction written from other perspectives. Um, 
And how, how important was it for you to sort of embody your own multicultural background? Because I understand you, you uh, were born in India originally, right? Yes. Yeah. In, uh, in South India. Nice. Yeah. And then I, yeah, like you, I, I was there until I was about five and then I came to the U.S. And so I've mostly grown up in the U.S., but um, all of my family was back in India when my parents moved here. And so we still had very, very strong ties back to the home country. Yeah. And in general, it's always important to me to represent the diversity of humankind in any story, right? Uh, obviously, in, in shorter stories, you don't get to have a large cast or in certain types of narratives, you know, you don't get to have a large cast. So you have to pick and choose who gets to be on screen, so to speak. But um, for Machine Head, I brought in Nithya's character specifically to be the one that that is most closely related to who I am, I guess. I mean, she she is more Indian than I in in a cultural sense because she entirely grows up in India. She just comes to the US for graduate school and that now she's living back there again during the events of the novel. She settled back in the city of Chennai, which is where most of my family um, is from and, and many of them still reside. So through her eyes, I was able to kind of bring forth that side of my own background. And then, and also she's the scientist. She's the nerd. She's the one, you know, doing computer simulations. Um, and so in more ways than one, she, she represents a lot of aspects of, of who I am, both, ethnically but also just in terms of lifestyle and so it was it was really nice to like I said to have her sort of as a, as the subplot because I do not ever vision myself as an action hero at the center of any story the world would be in big big trouble um so Welga is sort of my my wish fulfillment side I guess like the person I sometimes wish I could be out you know out there kicking butt um and and Nithya is really the the heart and soul of of who I am, and it's, it was also nice because Welga is the American, so that's you know that is how I identify at this point. It's like I am pretty thoroughly Americanized, and I'm settled here. I married an American. Uh, my child is a U.S. citizen. We're we're not we don't have any intention of moving back to India, right? So. So having, yeah, having a book that represented those two facets was a fairly conscious decision this time. Um, what I do in, you know, future stories, I try, I try not to be monoculture mm. either, you know, in the yeah. same way as having white America represent science fiction in the 30s, 40s, and 50s um, didn't do us any service, I think having a monoculture of the author being the only thing they can write going forward is also not going to do us any service. I think it's still good for everyone to kind of explore and learn and try to do their best representing, you know, their experiences through the eyes of different types of people in the world. That's awesome. And, and I love that, uh, the, 
this the, there's the diversity of culture, but also in your future. What's fascinating to me is like you include religion as an important topic in the discussion, uh, and it plays into. I don't want to give spoilers away for anyone you know who hasn't checked out the book because I really want folks to check it out. Uh, but religion plays into some of the subplot. Uh, as well. And there's even still some, uh, you know, topics like racism comes up, you know, certain biases and and, uh, things like that. So humans are still very much humans. Um, And, you know, it's interesting, I guess, like, how much did you wrestle in thinking like, wishful thinking, I would hope that in nearly a hundred, you know, in 75 years or whatever, that we would be past some of, uh, especially the racism and how much, uh, was it just, uh, speculation, uh, based on, well, humans are humans and we we're going to have a hard time overcoming some of these things. Yeah. I was trying not to be too wishful Philly about that stuff. And, and again, kind of Looking back at the long arc of history and social progress and how long it's taken people to change, I tried to extrapolate that, you know, forward. Okay, how much are we likely to change in 75 years? What types of issues are potentially still lingering? I had, um, I was in a a book discussion where I had a couple of women express great dismay at how much sexism is still present in 2095. And, you know, very much having that wish fulfilling, like, why aren't we past all that by now? And I kind of had to just point them at, you know, look, it's only been 100 years since we started getting the vote there's still so many places where we're wrestling for equality and the domestic sphere is still badly imbalanced you know the the unpaid labor of the home and so how much are we going to accomplish in the next 75 years there's still going to be a lot of battlefronts there's a lot of pushback from certain conservative and religious elements you know across the globe Uh, I don't lay this at the feet of any one particular culture. Um, I think every every social group has its particular biases and has people who want to uh, push progressive thinking and people who prefer to keep things the way they are or go back to the way things the way they were. And so on the plus side, for those of us uh, who are progressive and who like to see social progress, I will say that the the long arm of history points in that direction, right? Um, But sometimes it's a dance and it's, you know, a few steps forward and then a few steps back and those setbacks uh, never, never make us happy, but they happen. And that's kind of what slows down uh, the social progress that we'd like to see. And so that's, that was really where I tried to conceptualize, you know, what things might people still be dealing with 75 years from now? What things might they not? Um, One of the things that's in the book that is fairly subtle in the sense that, you know, there's no characters talking about it on screen, but it just sort of happens is that if you don't know someone's gender, you refer to them with they, them pronouns. And it's just sort of a, a polite thing everybody does. Nobody makes an assumption. And so 
that uh, there there are some readers who picked up on it and some who liked it and some who were annoyed by it um, inevitably yeah. but uh, most mostly I think the choice of pronouns <laughs> <laughs> there are still people who struggle with uh with they as a as the singular right um mm. but uh but that was you know that's an example of social progress that's mm-hmm. happened that everyone just kind of takes for granted right no one no one has to talk about that anymore but on the flip side uh Welga is you know part of the first all-female marine raider squad right. and so and that was the sort of thing where i had you know some some female raider or readers saying but why why is you know why does it take 75 years for this to happen and, and a it's fiction it might not take 75 years i certainly hope it doesn't right right but uh, b it could uh, because you know there are still many parts of the world in which uh, nobody even wants women in combat situations and so it's it's uh controversial still in a lot of people's minds and shifting that window of thinking that sociologists call the Overton window, right? That takes a lot of time and it's often slower than a lot of us would like. So no, I did, I didn't grant, uh, a perfect equitable, uh, utopian future from that particular standpoint to to anyone. So my apologies to those who are disappointed <laughs> in 2095 not making you know faster social progress. Um, but I think we'll still make progress. Like that's mm-hmm. that's the optimistic side of me is that while it may not be as fast as we want, it will still happen. Yeah, yeah, and like you said, there are definitely areas that we see. Even in this story where it's like, oh, progress is taking place. But yeah, I think it's probably more accurate and fair. Uh, We sometimes forget um, how close we still are historically to uh, women getting the vote. Uh, to uh, a lot racial of justice ra- racial justice, yeah, struggling. <laughs> struggling big time. You know, I, I, like I even you know think about it's like, oh yeah, we've we've passed that barrier. We've had a black president finally, but one we have one. <laughs> uh, we still haven't had a, a woman as a right. president. Um, so and and as much as like, yeah, I hope that happens sooner rather than later. Th- reality is so complicated that. Sadly, who knows? It might be 50 or 75 years yet before we manage that barrier. Um, yeah, which is, I hope not. I hope yes. not. Yes. <laughs> Same here. I, I, I suspect we could, uh, we could do better, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, but that's, I think, why I'm drawn to science fiction is this idea we could do better in how to uh, actually use it as a to run these sort of simulations of the future and think through both the scary scenarios and the the possible like good scenarios that might um, come out of that. Uh, do you, as someone who writes science fiction and has, as a curator of science fiction, as an editor, do you see any trends in... Uh, science fiction these days that that are particularly noteworthy in terms of helping us potentially build a better society. Yes, in that particular aspect, for sure. You know, there's a lot more, especially in short fiction, um, but even in certain long form 
a lot more people exploring ideas of things like universal basic income, of universal healthcare, of uh, energy, renewable energy, efficient futures, of responsible use of AI systems, of ways in which these various things can specifically interact to produce a better future. Um, you know, besides Escape Pod, I would also point people at the uh, Future Tense stories on Slate Magazine that they do in partnership with ASU's Center for the Science Center for Science and the Imagination, because um, that group at ASU is specifically looking at using science fiction and narrative to envision more positive outcomes for our near future. And so there's lots of wonderful stories there. Sometimes we we pick some out. Um, we run a couple on Escape Pod, like uh, Annalie Newitz had a wonderful story called uh, Robot and Crow Save St. Louis. And um, so things like that, I think, I think there's cognizance and more conversation happening within the genre space about, you know, what we call hope punk or solar punk in the Punk is applied to everything at this right. point, but really in the sense of, you know, revolutionary ways of thinking about our future that are positive as opposed to dystopian or apocalyptic and community building, um, you know, open source, like all kinds of good things are actually are happening even in our present reality, I would say, you know, for all the bad stuff that's happening and there has been plenty of it there are also many, many good things that are happening and people who are fighting the good fight at a grassroots level. And that's that's maybe the biggest change is, especially, again, in short fiction, I see a lot more stories about everyday mm-hmm. heroes as opposed to people in positions of power who are then wielding that power, you know, for good or ill. I'm seeing a lot more about the ordinary folk, you know, with their small acts of heroism. And, and I love those stories just as much as, you know, the, the big ones with their world changing um, plot lines and actions. So I think it, I think it is really important in the sense of being able to give people hope to show that, you know, everyone is empowered in, in some small way, right? Like that's, that's a lot of what gets us through our days. And so telling those kinds of stories, even if they are 200 years away on, you know, a space station around Europa is still, uh, I think, a big change from a lot of the types of stories that we used to feature. You know, it was always about the captains, right? the presidents, the whatever, right? The James Bonds of the world, the the rarities. And now... I think we're telling more stories about, you know, ordinary acts of heroism. And I think that's, that's lovely. Yeah. And it makes sense too, like what you're saying there about how we can relate to then those characters and those stories, because yeah, I am, as much as I might be fascinated by a a James Bond character and there's that sort of wish fulfillment aspect of, oh, that would be so cool to, to like be that badass. Uh, that's not me, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, uh, uh, I've been a stay-at-home dad and, uh, you know, uh, 
do documentary work by day. Like it's a, you know, my, my existence is much more mundane than sort of those exciting characters. So it is, is refreshing. It's uh, exciting to hear more science fiction kind of taking on those aspects of modeling that more. Um, and I know you mentioned the, uh, the, the hopeful punk or solar punk, uh, that was a particularly like really valuable conversation uh, last weekend at uh, Flights of Foundry uh, that I found particularly um, engaging, uh, and, uh, and I think it was it was on on Discord when when we we're uh, everyone was uh, talking that uh, that I proposed the uh, amalgamation all that uh, the, the into OptiPunk. As, right. <laughs> as as the uh, the optimistic uh, resistance in in science fiction, um, what what do you think constitutes fi- you know science fiction that would qualify as hopeful? Um, you know, do you think it has to be rosy? Like, what 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 is your lens on that? This idea of hope in science fiction is something very near and dear to the hearts of myself and Mer Lafferty, the co-editors of Escape Pod. And it's something we look for in every story we buy. We feel like when a story ends with no hope, that often isn't the kind of science fiction we want to publish and, and will often borderline on what we consider as horror. Um, so not to say that a story with a bleak ending is bad, uh, just more in terms of what we want to put out there in the world. And so we've had actually some conversations about what it means to us, to each other, to have hope in a story. And the way I like to describe it is that there is a ray of light or something in the main character's world or journey where they have hope in the sense of they can see a potential way for things to get better. And or sometimes, you know, the story is a tragedy, I will say, uh, or that if they are sacrificing themselves in some tragic way by the end of the story, that the people around them are then going to have uh, a better outcome because of it. So it's not tragedy for the sake of tragedy. It's tragedy. It's sacrifice for a better life for somebody else. And so I think that's really how we tend to encapsulate it. So if there's, you know, just a very grim, dark story, uh, can I spoil the end of Game of Thrones at this point? I presume I can. Please do. I I I actually have never I've never made it past the second episode, but (laughs) you you may spoil it for me because I don't know. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it to be honest. I speaking of fantasy books that I I read and enjoyed, I actually really loved the the first three books of the book series, and I read the fourth and fifth book and thought they were okay. And so you know, I was very excited for the TV show, and I was less enthused about some of the changes they made along the way. And eventually I gave up. But then when I heard that it was the final season and there were dragons, I was like, I, I'm just going to watch it. Cause I don't know when George R. R. Martin is going to finish the books. So I might as well, you know, 
see how it all ends because I had theories. We all had theories way back in 2001 when the third book came out. There was a lot of, you know, discussion on various forums online and theories about where things were going and who's who, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was like, oh, I want to know all the answers, right? And man, it was a grim, dark ending to what was presented as epic fantasy. And I think that's what made a lot of people very, very angry mm. because while grim and dark things happened to people along the way, we were allowed to root for certain characters and we presumed that there would be some sort of at least temporary happiness for these people by the end of this epic journey that they've all been on. And so I think it was one of those cases of uh, what they call in the crafting of fiction, a broken promise to the reader, right? Yeah. You've, you've set them up to think it's going to go a certain way. And then you pull the rug out from under them in a way that's not satisfying at all. Right. And so that I would, I would hold up the ending of, you know, Game of Thrones, the TV show as a way in which you have not given enough hope to uh, your audience, right? Some people still survive, but you're not really necessarily convinced that there's anything better because of it, that the world the world has not ended on any note that's better than where it started. And so that is the, the inverse of, you know, what I consider to be a hopeful story, right? So, Makes sense. so the grim, dark subgenre or the, the very like bleakness of an ending where everyone's just kind of like, okay, well, either we're right back where we started um, or, you know, everything's even worse <laughs> yeah. than where we started. Um, and, you know, that, that's a fairly common ethos in, in a lot of science fiction, even in a lot of dystopian science fiction. That's my biggest problem with uh, Black Mirror, the TV show, mm -hmm. is, you know, it never ends, it rarely ends on an up note. Right, right. Possibly never ends on an up note, especially for the main character and the people around them. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that frustrates me because while that can be reality for people and... Um, I can appreciate that we need to tell those stories. I feel like there is also another reality for a lot of people that things can get better. And so we also need to tell those stories. Otherwise we end up with, you know, the collective consciousness of pop culture AI, for example, yeah. which is that, you know, the robots are inevitably going to hate us. Right. So I think it's important to have that balance. And I guess in terms of escape pod, we're trying to provide that balance for our audience that look, you know, you can get a lot of these other grim, terrible stories elsewhere. So we're going to provide you with the ones that always have a ray of hope somewhere in there. Makes sense. Uh, for somebody yeah. in the story. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause there's something to be said, you know, you're pointing out like with black mirror and just with the, the cultural, perspective on some of these things there's something to be said about that basic reality of you know when we focus on the negative inevitably all we see is the negative right and we need we need some sort of model of the future in our minds that isn't inherently 
negative. It can be nuanced and complicated, but it seems like we need something that isn't strictly speaking Black Mirror. <laughs> as much as yeah. I, I, I overall <laughs> enjoy Black Mirror in its own way, it is. I will admit that it's usually the kind of thing I watch one episode and it'll be like, I'll be back next month. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all set for right now. Because <laughs> there's only so much of like, I don't know, the, 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 you know, there's cautionary tale aspect of it. That's fine. Uh, some tend towards nihilism and that gets a little too bleak for me. Um, it was the reason I had to give up on, I harp on it all the time, the walking dead, <laughs> because mm -hmm. that eventually just it, to me just descended into far too much nihilism to, uh, to, to really be worth my time. Perfectly. I don't think I made it past the first 10 minutes because I had a young child at the time. And as soon as the guy shoots the zombie child, I'm like, nope. Nope. All I'm done. Out. Yep. <laughs> I, I get that she's a, jump, a zombie and not an actual child, but still can't do it right now. <laughs> right. I, I feel that. I feel that. And, you know, the after having given it a serious try, like I think I got into like season three, I got to say, you're not missing, not missing anything. Probably the most interesting is the season everybody hated, season two, because it's actually about the characters, <laughs> from my perspective. Like, that one's probably the better, better one. And after that, it just it slides down. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, so it's fascinating just to, to be able to hear your perspective on these things, especially as someone who has uh, influence in uh, the realm of science fiction. And... Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about where people can uh, locate your stuff, can uh, kind of get to know your work a little more? Sure. You can find all of the stuff about my fiction at my website, which is just sbdivia.com. You can find me on Twitter as at Divya's Tweets and less frequently on Instagram as uh, at sbdivia underscore author. And then uh, for Escape Pod, it's escapepod.org. And for Machine Hood, there's actually a machinehood.com site nice. that has um, the entirety of the Machine Hood's manifesto. It's behind a password-protected page. But if you have the book, you should be able to figure out the password very easily. And so uh, if you're interested in that, the, there's excerpts from the manifesto at the start of many of the chapters, basically all of the chapters for the character Walga. And, uh, but they're out of order and it's not complete, but I did actually write the entire manifesto. So I've, I've put it up online for people to just have as bonus content who enjoy the book. Fascinating. I love that, that. There is an actual manifesto. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> which is awesome, which is just fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Divya, for, for taking time to uh, chat with me. And, uh, you know, like I could, I could probably keep asking you questions for, for hours and hours, especially uh, relating to neuroscience and, and where the future is headed. Um, but is there anything in particular right now that you're enjoying uh, in the realm of science fiction, TV, books, movies, anything that you're like, ooh, people need to also check this out? Yeah, for books, I will say definitely check out The Space Between Worlds by Micaiah Johnson and Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots. Um, I'm never sure if I'm saying that correctly, Walshots or Walscots. Um 
I need to find out. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I feel Hench that. is Hench. Uh, uh, the space between worlds is sort of sliding doors meets uh, not quite Mad Max, but sort of this really fun post-apocalyptic world. And um, Hench is, I would say, the feminist data science take on the show The Boys. Uh, it's everything I would like. I wanted The Boys to be, and it wasn't. And I absolutely loved its uh, deconstruction of, of superheroes and uh, and their side effects, their collateral damage. So it was also a very, very entertaining novel. And then, yeah, I'm just finally getting into season two of His Dark Materials on HBO. I've been watching them with my 11-year-old, and it's been it's been really fun getting to experience that particular story with her. Excellent. Awesome. Oh, wait, one more. One, oh, one more, more shout out. Yes. I thought everybody knew about this. And then I was talking to someone yesterday who hadn't heard of it and was like working in space stuff. And that is Space Sweepers on Netflix. Right. Which is a super fun, like if you like Firefly, if you like Star Wars, if you like The Expanse, it's just a fun, um, you know, Earth orbit, near solar space adventure, but it's entirely produced by a Korean film company. And so it has a, it has a Korean cast. It's, you're going to have to watch it with subtitles, but it's got robots. It's got, you know, found families, snarky crew members, lots and lots of fun. So definitely recommend that one too. Absolutely. It's, and speaking of, of things on Netflix, have you seen Stowaway yet? No, I have not seen Stowaway yet. And I feel like I just heard about that. Is it new? It, yeah, I think it just it just hit Netflix. Um, okay. and, and I watched it the other night and already recorded a, a review podcast for I it like to come that, out yeah. later. Um, but yeah, Anna Kendrick, uh, space movie. Uh, keeps, yes, stays and I in love the relatively, Anna Kendrick. Yeah. Well, I think I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't. Like I have this theory that literally <laughs> every single person alive kind of has a little bit of a crush on Anna Kendrick. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Especially after Pitch Perfect. That's right. still one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> but yeah, that one's that one's a fun one too. You might and especially with your interest in, in space and whatnot. Uh it might it, it fits more in the in the plausible uh, space, uh, futuristic kind of scenarios. Yeah, I think I saw like a little clip or a preview from it and I was like, Oh, what's this? And then I, I felt to follow up on it. Right. So thank you for reminding me. Oh. Cause as soon as you said it, I'm like, yes, that looked intriguing. What was it? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, Divya, thank you so much, uh, for being on the show. Uh, and, uh, I look forward to, uh, hopefully getting to chat with you again sometime if you're game for coming back and uh, chatting about yeah, uh, sure. other topics at some point. All right. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you later. And that's how the conversation with SB Divya went down. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, certainly learned a lot. And uh, there's just so much more I could keep chatting uh, with her about. Um, really a pleasure to have her on the show. So my huge thanks to SB Divya for coming on to Exploring Tomorrow and chatting with me for a while. And I really do encourage you to check out Machinehood. It is a fantastic book. It's really quite a thrill ride, super plausible, near future. And it is 
nuanced and hopeful all at the same time with characters that I really fell in love with. I really cared deeply for these characters and wanted to see where exactly these adventures were going to take them. So I really look forward to seeing more books by SB Divya. And as always, I encourage you to check out Escape Pod. Uh, it's a wonderful podcast and you want to be able to hear more good science fiction uh, and Look, they're just short stories and not be a major commitment. And specifically knowing that they're curated by someone who's looking for that kind of hopeful science fiction, that kind of vision of the future that, that gives us something more than just a nihilistic bleak ending, then you really got to check out Escape Pod. It's absolutely awesome stuff. So thank you so much for stopping by and listening to my humble podcast. Uh, please do take care of yourself and recommend good books and movies to each other. And as already hinted, as you already heard uh, in this podcast, uh, next episode, I'm going to be talking about Stowaway on Netflix and give my two cents uh, about the movie, how it stacks up and uh, whether it's worthwhile or not. So Tune in next time to hear my review of Stowaway. Until then, keep asking the big questions. We'll see you soon.